Welcome to uh, the first week in our semester-long study of eschatology. What do you think of when you think of eschatology? Some of you probably think of crazy people like uh, Harold Camping who kind of would predict the date of Christ's return and then when that wouldn't happen, he would go back and he would say, oh, I didn't carry the one or something and then he would predict it again and then again and again. Or some of you think of the left behind books or a particular form of eschatology that kind of uh, interprets all of the signs and symbols of revelation through modern technology. So a locust equals an Apache helicopter or a chariot is is a tank or something like that. When I was uh, an intern, just starting off in uh, in ministry at another church about 15 years ago, a guy uh, came and said he wanted to talk to me about eschatology. And I said, oh great, Uh, come and meet me at the church. And he shows up and he has a scroll that he unravels and it's 20 feet long and it has basically all of world history in terms of his eschatological approach. And so everyone kind of has these diverse views of eschatology. I think some people are kind of over-obsessed about uh, eschatology. They, uh, they love it a bit too much. It's kind of the thing that gets them going in the morden. It's not that they love Jesus. It's not that they love the Spirit. It's not that they love the Bible. They just love prophecy and apocalyptic literature and revelation and eschatology and these sorts of things. And so these people tend to make a particular view of eschatology kind of the litmus test for orthodoxy. If you don't believe these exact precise things like they do, then you don't love Jesus, you don't love the Bible, whatever it might be. If you don't agree with them, then uh, you must not be a Christian. Other people, though, have probably had those experiences with people who are a bit too obsessed about the topic, uh, or at least about certain details within the topic, and they swing the pendulum to the other end, and, uh, and they just are apathetic towards it. They don't care about eschatology at all. Hopefully what we're going to do this semester is show you a uh, kind of a moderate approach between the two, that there would be a love and appreciation for eschatology, that you would not neglect it, but neither would you get obsessed about some of the details that I don't think are all that important uh, for us. And so we're hopefully going to walk the line between the two extremes. So let's talk about eschatology. What is Eschatology, well, as you know, uh, typically the, uh, the, the particular frames or, or systems of theology are noted by a, 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 a pre, uh, kind of a, uh, an initial word that is uh, in Greek related to that topic of study. So when, when we say theology, that's from the Greek word theos, which means what? God. So theology is the study of God. You have theology proper, which is studying the attributes and character of God proper, or you have theology in general. And then you have Christology, which is related to Christos, which means what? Christ, the anointed one, the king, those kinds of things. You have pneumatology, which is the the doctrine, the study of the pneuma, which is what? The spirit. Uh, Bibliology, the study of the biblos, which is book or Bible? What about hamartiology? Study of hamartia. Sin, that's the doctrine of sin. Anthropology? Study of man. Soteriology? Study of salvation. Ecclesiology? Study of the church, the ecclesia. And then eschatology is the study of the eschatos, which means the final, the last, the end. And so the end times, the study or the doctrine of the final, the end, the last things 
That's what eschatology is. Basically, what we just went over when we said theology and Christology and bibliology and hamartiology and anthropology, all of those kinds of things, that's basically the last uh, two and a half years of, uh, of Parkway. So if, you don't, if you're not familiar with some of those terms, go back and listen to the audio online. So eschatology is the study of the eschatos, which is a Greek word meaning end or final or last. And you see this word uh, a number of times in the, uh, in the New Testament. And so look at John eleven twenty four. This is in your notes. Martha, speaking to Jesus, uh, says to him, I know that he, speaking of Lazarus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the eschatos day, on the last day. 2 Timothy 3, 1, Paul's writing this, and he says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 1 Peter 1, 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, eschatos. 2 Peter 3.3, 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So last days, last times, those kinds of things, at least from the perspective of the Gospels and the epistles, it seems like there is this reference to something future, something yet to come. In the last days, some future event. But what's interesting is you also are going to see the word eschatos, the word last, is also going to be used of something that's in the present, that's already here. It's a present reality. Look at Acts 2.17. This is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. What's happening in Acts 2? Does anybody know? Pentecost. And what happens at Pentecost? Something falls down. The Spirit, the Spirit is falling down. This is actually being fulfilled there in the first century. And yet Joel considered this the last days. In the last days, this is going to happen, and it's happening actually in the first century. Look at uh, Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But look at this. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son. So last days is not just some distant reality. It's a present reality. 1 Peter 1.20, he was foreknown, speaking of Christ, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Or 1 John, which uh, is the book that we're preaching through in our main service. Children, it is the last hour. Not it will be, but it is the last hour. And you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And so we call this tension that you're going to see where the last days is something that's in the future, but also it's something that we're experiencing in the present. We call this the already but not yet tension. The already but not yet of eschatology. In order to understand that, we need to understand Jewish eschatological hope. We're actually going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about this, but I want to preview that. And so in Jewish expectation, you have this present evil age, and then you have this future age that is the age to come. And so there's some sort of decisive marker, some sort of decisive point in history in which you move from the present evil age 
into the age to come. As, and we're, as we're going to see, that involves the Messiah, that involves resurrection, that involves all of these promises that God makes to Israel and so forth. But this is the way that they view it. It's a very linear sort of thing. There's a very decisive uh, thing in between. The problem with that is what we see in Scripture in regards to this already but not yet. And so I want to do something with Venn diagrams. You're familiar with the Venn diagram? That's what we have here. Some people are really excited about Venn diagrams. Imagine, if you will, that we're trying to decide who is the ultimate staff member, the ultimate staff member at Parkway. And so we have various criteria, and we use Venn diagrams to figure that out. So let's say we have all of the staff members who are in their 40s, which constitute Carl and myself, but let's say that another criteria is that they have hair. Well, Carl is not in that category, and I'm the only one. So I am the ultimate staff member if those are the two criteria. Now, let's say the criteria is that you're bearded. You have Zach and you have Tim. But you say also that you're musically gifted. Well, Carl's musically gifted, but he's not bearded, and so Tim is the ultimate one. And then if it's every staff member who's an elder, then that's uh, myself and Zach. But if it's an elder who will do Krav Maga in the garage with you, that is Zach. That's a particular passion of his. So, here's why I show you that is because, we'll see if this works. Uh Uh-oh. New whiteboard. Uh, uh, So, what you see is that there is this overlap that is being experienced here where you have this present evil age and then you have the age to come. And there's an overlap in between the two. And this is where we find ourselves, here in this red. There is a sense in which we're still in the already, but there's also a sense in which we're in the not yet, right? The kingdom has been inaugurated, to use this language, but it's not yet been consummated. So what is that decisive thing that is going to take place that's going to kind of mark the transition between these two ages, between the, the present age and the age to come or the kingdom of God, What's well, all of these sorts of things? The dead are raised, the blind see, the sick are healed, demons are judged, and uh, the nations uh, respond uh, to Yahweh and so forth. Now, when do we see those happen chronologically? When do we see those happen historically? They happen with Jesus, right? Look at uh, what Matthew 12, 28. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And, in other words, this is an already This has already happened. This has been inaugurated. What does Jesus do in his ministry? He heals. He preaches the good news. He casts out demons. He raises the dead. And then he himself is raised from the dead, not like anybody has ever been raised from the dead before. You have all kinds of, quote-unquote, resuscitations that take place throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, guys like Lazarus and, uh, and so forth. Jesus is the first to be resurrected which is an entirely different thing. We've talked about the distinction between resuscitation and resurrection uh, before. And so this is the marker that we have transitioned into this, uh, this new reality that is the age to come. But yet we're still in this present evil age. We still get sick. We still die. There's still demonic oppression. There's still all of these sorts of things. There's this already but not yet. We'll talk more about that as we're going to move through eschatology. In fact, that is one of the biggest things for you to understand some of the difficulties of eschatology is that uh, reality of that already but not yet sort of perspective. So we'll be talking about that in the age to come as we consider the Old Testament 
uh, Jewish eschatological hopes and Jewish intertestamental eschatological hopes and all of those sorts of things. So we're going to be talking about that in the weeks ahead. Speaking of which, um, if you weren't here last week and you didn't get a copy of our syllabus, I think we have a couple of copies that are available, but it's also available, it should be available on the, uh, the website. Tim, is it currently on the website? Tim thinks so, and he is the webmaster, so if he doesn't know, I don't know who would. Um, but uh, we can get you a copy. So if it's not on the website and we don't have anything here, send us an email. We'd be happy to uh, get you a copy of the syllabus so you can know what we're talking about. Let me give you a preview of some of the questions that we'll be asking over the semester to kind of uh, uh, a bit of a tease for the semester. Here is what eschatology deals with. It deals with questions like when and how will Satan be judged it deals with questions like, what's the deal with Revelation? Why is it so different from Romans or from Luke? What's the deal with the Antichrist? Why does 1 John speak of multiple Antichrists, as we just read in 1 John chapter 2? Will Christians go to heaven? Will they live in heaven for eternity? Or is that a temporary place as they're waiting for something beyond heaven? What's the deal with hell? What should we think as Christians about annihilationism or universalism? Can Christ return whenever, or are there some sort of future conditions which must first be met? What will his return be like? What will it look like? What will it sound like? Will there be multiple returns or just one return? What should we think of those who claim to calculate the return of Christ? Can we accurately predict when he will come? Is the Great Tribulation something which occurred in 70 AD, or is it something that's going to occur in the future? Or is that something that is an ongoing reality, that we're always in some sort of great tribulation? What is the rapture? Will the church be raptured pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or pre-wrath or mid-wrath or whatever it might be? Or is that question even misleading because there is no secret rapture at all? What is the millennium? Are we premillennial? And if so, are we historic premillennial or dispensational premillennial? Are we post-millennial or are we all-millennial? Does it even matter? What have other Christians believed about all of these things? So we have our work cut out for us over the semester. Those are the kinds of questions that we're hoping to answer. And so what I want to do this week, again, is kind of set the stage for the next semester of talking about eschatology. So I like lists, so I'm going to give you a few lists. The first list that I'm going to give you is nine reasons why eschatology is a bit more difficult than uh, maybe reading through Romans or maybe reading through Jonah or something like that. So why is eschatology difficult? Nine reasons. Number one, eschatology often involves genres of Scripture with which we are much less familiar. So eschatology is basically broken up into a couple of categories. You have prophecy and then you have apocalyptic literature. Both of those just tend to be not where we camp out. We tend to be more familiar with gospel literature. We tend to be more familiar with historical narrative, books like Genesis or Exodus. We tend to be more familiar with epistolary literature like Romans. Uh, and so the, uh, the genres of Scripture that we find most eschatology, although we find eschatology in those other genres, you find eschatology in historical narrative. You find eschatology in epistolary literature, the writings of Paul and so forth. 
But you also have these apocalyptic and you have prophetic sort of uh, genres that are much more symbolic, much more figurative, and so it's more difficult for us because we're not as familiar. Related to that, a second reason that it's difficult is because we're not as familiar with the Old Testament as we should be. We miss connections that we would get if we were more familiar with the Old Testament. In fact, as we'll see as we look at the book of Revelation, Revelation, by the way, it's not Revelations, plural, it's Revelation. Revelation is saturated with Old Testament allusions. When the Bible has quotation marks, if you're reading somewhere and it says, quote-unquote, as Isaiah wrote, and then you have quotation marks there, it's really easy to know, I need to go back and read Isaiah to understand what Paul is saying here, or what Peter is saying here, or what John is saying here. But most, the overwhelming majority of the uses of the Old Testament in the New Testament are not direct quotations. Instead, they are allusions. Let me give an example of this. Some of you may have picked up on it. Some of you may not. Last week, I was preaching, and I was naming various quote-unquote gods that people might worship. And so I mentioned Zeus, and I mentioned Thor, and I mentioned Vishnu, and then I mentioned Gozer the Gozerian. Who knows what that's from? Raise your hand. Ghostbusters, right? I also mentioned Zorp the Lizard God who melts people with his volcano mouth. Anyone know what that's from? Parks and Recreation, right? If you've not watched Parks and Recreation or, or that particular episode, or you've not watched Ghostbusters, you, you just, you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? And you don't have to have any idea what I'm talking about. But whenever Paul writes something, he expects you to get the illusion. He expects you to be so entrenched and saturated with the idea of the Old Testament that you would pick these things up naturally. Because we're not as familiar with the Old Testament as John or Peter or Paul or whatever it might be, uh, then we are often missing out on some of these things. And so we think that there is a reference that is not necessarily there or we're missing out on something. And so Peter, Paul, John, James, Jude, so forth, they're writing in a way that constantly alludes to the Old Testament with the expectation that you would understand the illusion. A third reason that eschatology is difficult is because there is an underemphasis on it in theologically solid churches, and I think an overemphasis on it in theologically shallow churches. So if you were to do a Google search on the rapture or the millennium or eschatology in general, I guarantee you, I, I guarantee you this because I know I did this very thing over the past couple of weeks, I guarantee you the majority of the search results aren't good. They're not actually what the Bible would say about those particular topics. So there's an underemphasis on, on it in theologically solid churches for whatever reason and an overemphasis on it in theologically shallow churches. A fourth reason that eschatology tends to be difficult is that we tend to misunderstand or ignore that already but not yet uh, perspective that permeates the entire uh, eschatology of the, not only the uh, Old Testament but the New Testament. We tend to ignore that. And then we also tend to ignore or misunderstand uh, what's called prophetic uh, foreshortening. Prophetic foreshortening. So we've already talked about already but not yet. Let me talk about prophetic foreshortening. That refers to the fact that sometimes events in Scripture seem like they are much closer in time 
when in reality they are actually distant. For example, when you're just reading the Old Testament, it looks as though Isaiah is saying that when the Messiah comes, that there is going to be immediate judgment of God's enemies, immediate destruction of God's enemies. But that is not actually what we see, is it? Historically, we know that Christ actually comes, and then he goes away, and then he's going to come again, and then there will be destruction of God's enemies. So what appears to be uh, simultaneous, what appears to be related in regards to time, there's actually this huge gap. It's kind of like if you're driving up, if you've ever driven to Colorado or something like that, and you come upon the mountains, and whenever you first see the mountains off in the distance, these two peaks look like they are almost overlapping. And then as you get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, you recognize there is this huge distance that actually is between these two different peaks. That's oftentimes how eschatological events are. They appear to us on first reading to be really close in time, but there's actually this huge distance uh, between them. So eschatology is kind of like that looking at a um, mountain range. What seems to be chronologically conjoined are actually distinct and, uh, and distant events. And so we tend to misunderstand the already and not yet. We tend to misunderstand concepts like prophetic foreshortening. So that's another reason that eschatology is different. A fifth reason that uh, eschatology is different is uh, difficult is because there are dozens of different combinations. And so I think there can be what you might call paralysis by overanalysis. Has anyone ever been to the Cheesecake Factory? What's distinct about their menu? It has everything that's ever been cooked, right? In the history of the world, if you can think of it, it's there. I, uh, I looked online. Their menu, someone want to guess how many pages? 21. That's the menu, 21 pages, over 250 different distinct items in addition to the way that you could customize an individual item. So you talk about being overwhelmed by choices. You can get pizza, you can get meatloaf, you can get a salad, you can get nachos, you can get fettuccine alfredo, you can get Asian dumplings, you can get all kinds of things. Well, that's kind of like eschatology. In most uh, areas of Scripture, in most of the things that we've talked about before, and Christology and pneumatology and soteriology and hamartiology and so forth, there might be one and only one option. You are either a Nicene, Trinitarian, Orthodox Christian or you're a heretic. You either believe in the Chalcedonian vision of Christ or you don't. When it comes to salvation, you're either a Calvinist or an Arminian. Now, you might hate those terms. You might not agree with those terms. But logically speaking, you are one or the other. But in uh, eschatology, there are dozens upon dozens of different combinations for you. You could be dispensational, premillennial. You could be premillennial, but not dispensationally premillennial. You're historic premillennial. So you have a particular view of the rapture or no rapture or whatever it might be. And so there's all kinds of different uh, combinations. And those combinations aren't just held by heretics. They're held by respectable, regenerate Orthodox, Bible-loving believers. That's one of the reasons that it's difficult. Related to that, sixth, there was no universal ecumenical council to settle these things. The early church did us a huge favor by establishing boundaries of belief when it comes to Trinitarianism, when it comes to Christology, even to some degree when it comes to the doctrine of sin and man. 
the uh, Protestant Reformation did a very helpful thing by giving us kind of the orthodox view when it comes to justification, uh, but there's been no such thing when it comes to eschatology. There was no sort of universal ecumenical council to settle these things. A seventh reason, again, we have, uh, we have nine, so we're almost done with this. A seventh reason is that aspects of eschatology are intentionally unrevealed. I think there is something in us that we think of the Bible almost like um, a, a how-to manual or something like that. We think that it is kind of the, uh, like an encyclopedia. Any question that we have, we want to go to the Bible, and we expect it to answer that question for us when that is not God's promise. God has not promised that He will answer every single question that we have. He's promised that He has given us and He will give us everything that's necessary for life and godliness. The Bible, has every, the Bible is sufficient. It, it, requ- it has everything God requires you to know and do and believe and say and think and love and all of that. But God knows that we don't need to know exactly when Christ returns. We need to know that He is going to return. That's very important. So the Bible is very clear on that. But He knows that we don't need to know when it's actually going to happen, which is why you have things like Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Or immediately after that, Matthew 24, 42 through 44, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, but that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so there are certain aspects of eschatology that we're super passionate about, and yet the Bible has not revealed that. So if you're super passionate, let's say you're a, a, you're a paleontologist, and you're just super passionate about what a paleontologist study? Dinosaurs. So you're, you're super passionate about dinosaurs. As so you go to the Bible, you're like, I want to know everything that God says about dinosaurs. Are you going to be frustrated? Yeah, because it doesn't say much about dinosaurs, right? That's something that you're passionate about, and God says, you don't need to know that. I'm not filling up my Bible with all of these things that are extraneous and superfluous. And so there are a number of things that we think are super important when it comes to eschatology that God, for whatever reason, in His infinite wisdom has said, that's not important. You don't need to know that. Eighth, an eighth reason that eschatology is different is because we tend to be very Western-centric. In fact, we tend to be very American-centric. Uh, we read Scripture through our own cultural lenses and experiences. For example, when the Bible talks about wars and rumors of war, most of the time what we do is we think about when America has been at war, not really paying attention to the fact that there have been wars and rumors of wars throughout history in China, in Afghanistan, in Africa, wherever uh, it might be. We tend to be very self-focused, very ethnocentric. When the Bible talks about earthquakes, we tend to think of American earthquakes. We don't think of earthquakes that affect Japan or whatever it might be. And so when things start to get really bad in America, then what do we do? We freak out. And we think that Christ must be coming soon. All the while we completely ignore that in various parts of the world at various times, it has been worse than it is here now. And so we're unfamiliar with that. There tends to be an ethnocentrism to the way that we view Scripture. And so, yes, Jesus is coming soon. 
But at the same time, as we'll see, he's been coming soon for 2,000 years. That same word was used in the first century, and it's no less true back then as it is today. Last reason that this is, uh, or at least that I've written down, that, that eschatology is difficult is because we have existing presuppositions, and a lot of those are bad presuppositions. There's not nearly as much craziness when it comes to other doctrines. There is some craziness out there when it comes to other topics, but not nearly as much. And when there is a, some crazy dude that's teaching a variant view of the Bible, a variant view of Christ, or whatever it is, it's easy to recognize that he's part of a cult, or he's teaching heresy. For example, you heard of Benny Hinn, right? He's not good. Don't listen to Benny Hinn. He says that God isn't a trinity. You know what he actually is? He's a trinity of trinities, right? So he's actually nine persons. I don't know why he didn't go further and say trinity cubed. He's a trinity of trinity of trinities, 27 persons. Uh, I think that would be better. That's going to be his next sermon series, trinity cubed. But when it comes to eschatology, there's, not, there's all kinds of, there's people all over uh, the map. This is something that, again, even regenerate, Bible-loving, theologically robust pastors and theologians differ on. As a result, we all have bad presuppositions, every single one of us. Zach, myself, the other elders, the other staff members included, all of us have views on eschatology that aren't accurate. Every single one of us in this room has a view of eschatology that is incorrect, and it's always more difficult to remodel an existing structure than it is to just build one from the ground. But in eschatology, that's what you're often having to do. You come in with existing presuppositions and so this semester is going to be difficult because it's going to perhaps force you to confront some of those presuppositions. Sometimes, on certain topics of Scripture, it's easy. You just kind of need a fresh coat of paint. That's it. Or you might need a little bookshelf installed, or you might need a light hung or something like that. But oftentimes in eschatology, it's like knocking down a load-bearing wall and pouring an entirely new foundation. So that's much more difficult. And... Uh, and so for all of these reasons, eschatology is difficult, and so we approach this semester with a bit of fear and trembling, knowing we're probably going to get some things wrong, and there are probably going to be things that we say that are going to confront you, that are going to challenge you, that are going to maybe even offend you or upset you. That's not the way I was taught. It's not what I think. That's not what that passage means to me or whatever it might be. So there has to be grace that we give each other as we work through some of these things, recognizing that most of what we're going to talk about is controversial. We're going to talk about controversial stuff like the rapture and millennial theories, but that really isn't the focus of the semester. The focus of the semester is not really the millennial theories and the rapture and, uh, and hermeneutical approaches to revelation and how to understand the tribulation. Those are all important. Again, we are going to spend time discussing each of those, but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. What is the forest? What is essential? What's the focus when it comes to eschatology? Well, there's seven things that the church has always held. Even when we disagree on dozens upon dozens of other things, other nuances of eschatology, the church is universally held to the following truths. And so I want to give you seven things that the church has held, seven reasons that eschatology is important, and then we'll do Q&A. And that will be our day. So seven things that are essential. If you walk away and you don't understand the millennium and you don't understand the rapture, but you do understand these seven things, that's a win, all right?
Number one, God is sovereign. He not only knows what will happen, He ordains it. He's not just really good at guessing the future. He actually orchestrates the future. He ordains the future. He sovereignly superintends the future. This is really important because without it, everything else that we'll discuss is conditional. It's potential. Jesus might come back. There might be a resurrection. That's no confidence whatsoever. Your hope, if that's the case, it's not anchored in anything that's actually certain, and you're going to uh, blow about in every direction. So without that view that God is sovereign, not only sovereign in the present, not only sovereign in the past, but sovereign in the future, He is going to accomplish what He has ordained and what He has said. Without that, everything is up in the air. Speaking of up in the air, number two, Jesus is coming back. If this isn't true, then nothing else matters. This is really the focus of eschatology. This is our blessed hope as, uh, as Scripture says, Hebrews 9, 27 through 28, and just as it has been appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. 1 Thessalonians four sixteen. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. James 5, 7 through 8, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Acts 1, 10 through 11, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, this is as Jesus is ascending, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And there are dozens upon dozens of other passages that we could mention, but Jesus is coming back. If that isn't true, nothing that we talk about matters. Third, there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Finishing, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, we read it, uh, earlier, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. No one is really surprised. I've never been teaching on the resurrection, and someone's been surprised by the reality that believers will be resurrected. But what's sometimes surprising for believers is the idea that unbelievers will also be resurrected. We see that in uh, Scripture as well. John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will, rot, will hear His voice and come out. Listen to this. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Or Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awaken some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, this is not universalism. This doesn't mean that uh, resurrection equals eternal life for everybody because of what we talk about next. Why will they be resurrected? Because of the next point. Number four, there will be judgment. Eternal life for those who love and trust Jesus. Eternal condemnation for those who do not love and trust Jesus. So, believers are resurrected to experience eternal life in resurrected bodies, in new bodies, in recreated bodies. 
Whereas unbelievers are resurrected to experience eternal condemnation in resurrected bodies. There is no disembodied spiritual existence. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, there is no disembodied, ethereal, sort of floating in the clouds existence. Whether, you're, uh, exi- whether your eternal fate is eternal joy or eternal suffering, you will do so in, in a body, in a resurrected body. The reason is because otherwise death wins. Death gets to keep some trophies. It gets to keep the dead who are the unbelievers. But reading the Bible, you see, even death itself will be judged. Death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Death doesn't win anything. Jesus wins everything. So Hebrews 9.27, just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Matthew 25.46, and, well, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we'll talk about uh, eternal condemnation. We'll talk about eternal life this semester. Fifth thing that is essential is that Christians should eagerly long for the return of Christ. Let's get real for a second. I think every one of us in this room would say there have been seasons. Maybe it's a season that you're in right now. Maybe most of your life has been like this, where there have been things that you would say, you know what, I want Jesus to return, but not yet. There's something else I want to accomplish. I want to get married first. I want to have kids first. I want my kids to get married first. I want to graduate college because otherwise I feel like it's a waste that I've been in for three years or whatever uh, it might be. I think that's normal. That's a normal sort of perspective, but also at the same time, although it's normal, it's not healthy. It's a sign that something is wrong in us. It's kind of like if you go to the doctor and they say, has your appetite decreased? Why are they asking that question? To see if there's an underlying uh, root uh, illness. So if there is a, a, a lack of hunger and thirst for Jesus to return, that's a sign, that's a symptom of some sort of underlying sickness in your affections and your desires. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if you don't really eagerly long for Christ to return, but it means that that's an area of your life at which the lordship and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ has not fully been pressed upon you. And that's an area that you need to press in to him because you should be able to say, along with Revelation twenty-two twenty, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. You should be able to say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You should be able to say, Titus 2, 11 through 13, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This next phrase, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This should be your blessed hope. 1 Corinthians 16, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then notice what it says next. Our Lord come. It's actually the first, Maranatha. That's where we get that uh, word Maranatha from. Our Lord come. Do so you see how there's the connection between if you love Him, you will long for Him. All right? It's like saying, I love my wife, but I don't really want to see her. I don't want to call her. I don't want to text her. I don't want to hang out with her. I'm fine just being completely separated from her. Well, something's off in my love. So Christians should eagerly long for the return of Christ. Number six, belief in the future affects how we live in the present. Imagine, if you will, that you somehow know definitively 
that you are going to inherit $50 billion, billion with a B, $50 billion in one month. Imagine how that would change the way that you think of money over the next four weeks, right? Someone asks you for money, sure, doesn't matter. $5,000, great, here you go. You give to the church, you, you, you wrestle with, can we go on this date? I don't know that we can afford a babysitter. Dip into your savings, what does it matter? Should you get your kids new shoes or a new backpack or new clothes for school? Get all of them. It doesn't matter. There is this sense in which this future reality is going to impress upon the way that you live in the present, and that's what eschatology does. It loosens our grip on the present by transferring our hope to the future, which should affect the way that we think about money and possessions and free time and sickness and death and everything else. If this life is all there is, then I must cling to it. I have to protect it. I have to safeguard myself from all of these hurts and pains and risk and so forth. But if it's not, if this is just a prelude to real life, then all of a sudden I'm free. I'm free to love others. I'm free to sacrifice. I'm free to serve. I'm free to do all of these sorts of things. As Jim Elliott, who is a a famous martyr missionary, said, uh, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the the connection that you see in Scripture between eschatology, that is the future, and the present. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That begins this uh, prolonged section that I won't read all of it on eschatology. And then look how that section kind of concludes in verses 8 through 11. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, present, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation for God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we might live with him therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing you see the future eschatology affects the present the way that we live in the present second Peter 3 11 through 13 since All these things are thus to be dissolved, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. What sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the last thing that is essential for you to grasp that you should bear in mind as we talk about all the different controversial things over the next however many, 20 or so weeks, is that eschatology is ultimately about Jesus. It's what it's ultimately about. Revelation twenty-two thirteen: I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation nineteen ten: the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So don't miss the forest for the trees. We'll be talking about a lot of trees this semester. But the forest is the glory, the renown of Jesus Christ, the return of the King. If you understand all the different millennial theories, if you understand what terms like preterism and historicism mean, if you can recite what every theologian has ever taught uh, on, uh, on all of these things, if you could best Zach Lee in an academic debate on all of these eschatological sorts of things, but you don't have your affections raised for Jesus over this semester, then this has been a waste. 
absolutely been a waste. Whereas, if you get nothing else out of the semester, you don't understand the millennium, you don't understand the tribulation, you don't understand any of these sorts of things, that's unfortunate, but if your affections for Jesus are raised, then that's a win. Our hope is a bit of both. Our hope is that you would understand some of the details of eschatology, some of the nuances, while having greater hope in Christ, but the latter is of infinitely more importance than the former. Speaking of importance, I want to end or begin to end with this, and then I want to read a passage of Scripture and end on that. Seven reasons why eschatology is important. So if this has not convinced you as we've talked about it, that this is important, this semester is important, then hopefully these seven reasons will. Number one, eschatology concerns the end and eternal life. Is eternity a big concept or a little concept? Big concept, right? So when we're talking about something that involves eternal life, that's a pretty big deal. So that's important. Number two, we're called to preach and teach and know the full counsel of God, and that includes eschatology. What's the Great Commission? Anyone tell me? Go and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Jesus commands stuff regarding eschatology. He commands us to pay attention. He commands us to be alert. He commands us to wait. He commands us to long. He commands all of these sorts of things. If we are going to be faithful disciples, we have to understand eschatology. doesn't mean you have to know all of the different nuances and all that kind of stuff, but you have to understand eschatology in order to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Number three, why it's important, is because his eschatology has been historically neglected and or butchered in the church. Number four, eschatology provides hope to endure present trials and tribulations. As we talked about, the future affects the present. Number five, eschatology provides fuel for present obedience, which I just mentioned. Number six, eschatology warns the unbeliever of the reality of coming judgment. And number seven, how can we long for that which we do not know about? Many of you know that I'm a quarter Japanese. My dad actually is here, and my dad uh, grew up in, grew up, I mean, until he was like two, in a Japanese uh, orphanage. And, uh, and so a f- few years back, my family got to go over there, and for whatever reason, we're not adventurous or something like that. So we ate at Hard Rock Cafe. We ate at Bubba Gump. We ate at McDonald's. I'm not lying, right? This is the, the kind of places that we ate. And, uh, and that's what we did. Now, my second trip to Japan was actually a, uh, a mission trip. And on that trip, I actually got exposed to sushi. And I love sushi. I'd never in my life prior to that, I'd never craved raw fish. I caught a lot of fish in my life. I never once thought, I'm going to take a bite out of that, right? And yet, there was something about, I, about it that just awakened a hunger in me for sushi. Not just any sushi, good sushi. There's bad sushi, and there's good sushi, and those are totally different categories. That's a category uh, sort of confusion. And so that's what I hope this semester kind of does for us. I'm not arrogant enough to think that we'll actually accomplish all of the things that we would like to accomplish, but I am optimistic enough that the Spirit could work in our hearts to collectively give us a desire, an affection, a longing, a burning, a yearning, a craving for eschatology, for Christ, because Christ is eschatology. Eschatology is about Jesus Christ. So I want to close with this. Revelation 22, 1 through 5, you have this in your notes. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp nor sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I want you to notice, so that, that's a beautiful depiction of eschatology. It's a beautiful uh, depiction of our hope. But I want you to notice, embedded right there in the middle, almost hiding in subtlety, is the whole point. Notice that little phrase that says, they will see his face. Third to last sentence or something like that. That's it. That's the hope. That's the goal. That's the reward of eschatology. The good news of eschatology is not that you get out of hell. The good news of eschatology is not that you get a mansion, a sweet mansion made of gold, on streets made of gold or diamonds. The good news of eschatology is not that you get to see your loved ones who have died. The good news of eschatology is the good news of the gospel, which is that you get to see Jesus. That's the point of eschatology. So even as we work through other details over the semester, don't miss. That's the hope. That's the focus. That's the goal. Zach, you want to come up? We'll do some Q&A. All right. Hey, everybody. There's a bunch of people in this room. Okay. A few questions. Uh, the first one several people ask, and so I want to spend a little time on that one because uh, this is something I've been studying a lot recently. <clears throat> in regards to Matthew 24, 36, how can the Son not know something that the Father does if they are both one omniscient God? People ask about this because Jesus says that uh, the second coming, nobody knows when that's going to happen, not even the angels, nor the Son, but only the Father. So let me be very clear on this so that everybody understands. This is one of the passages that the heretic Arius tried to use to say that Jesus wasn't divine. Doesn't he clearly say that the Father knows something that he doesn't know? The church responded and said, that is talking about Jesus' humanity, okay? Jesus in his humanity does not know. Jesus in his deity must know, okay? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit only have one mind. God is simple. Okay? We as humans, we have body and mind. God just is mind, and so there is nothing that the Father knows that the Son doesn't know. I think a lot of Christians practically in our day-to-day -day lives are accidentally tritheistic. We have a tendency to kind of think that God has three centers of consciousness. That is not the historic Christian position. So uh, what the church has said is that Jesus is talking there in his humanity. Jesus is just one person. He's Jesus, but he has two distinct natures. And oftentimes when you're reading the Bible, though there's just one Jesus, you have to ask yourself, is this a reference to his deity or to his humanity? When he sleeps, when he dies, when he grows in knowledge of the scriptures, when he's tempted, that has to be a reference to his humanity. God, after all, cannot be tempted. God knows everything. God cannot die. When he, however, forgives sin, when he knows the future, when the Bible talks about him always existing, that is in relation to his deity. And so when he says he doesn't know, what he's trying to say is, you don't know. This is something that is a God prerogative. That's his main point. But he's not saying in his deity, he's not getting into that whole Christological debate. He's just trying to stop the Herald Campings of the world from putting a date up on the, uh, up on the billboard. Uh, and so that's, that's the main thing that is, uh, that is going on there. But anyway, anything you want to add to, to that? Just, I, I mean, the, I think we should walk away with that with a profound, profound sense of awe at Jesus' humility that knows he has access to anything that he wants to know. He can just ask his father. And yet it seems like 
He is so intent on his mission, so intent on his goal, that anything that's extraneous, anything that he doesn't need to know, he doesn't ask. He doesn't ask the Father. He doesn't ask the Spirit. He doesn't call upon his divine attributes uh, oftentimes. Instead, he wants to be the Spirit-empowered man. And so he's just so focused on that mission that anything else that's unnecessary for him uh, is uh, extraneous. And, uh, and so I think there is a profound sense in which uh, you see by that passage and other passages just the humility of Jesus that should be encouraging for us. Uh, this next one is good. What are some of Zach's bad presuppositions? So I'll just kick that over to you if you need any of those. Uh, you have a presupposition that you don't have presuppositions. And uh, you, have, you have a presupposition that beards are good, that pirates are good, that Krav Maga is good, that, I mean, there's a lot of things that you have. But. I mean, Jesus had a beard and I'm still alive, so at least two of those. It was ripped out. Okay. It was ripped out. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you had said something. You said that humans have no disembodied existence, and I was just going to give a clarifier and, and have Eternal. you chat on this. Eter- yeah, just eternally. So we do have a disembodied existence when we die. Our bodies go into the ground. Our souls go to rest with Christ. But it doesn't stay that way. Do you want to talk a little bit about kind of our final hope, uh, not being just going to heaven where there's elevator music and we're like a floaty light orb or something? Yeah, so we did um, uh, two semesters ago, maybe, I don't know exactly when, but we, we taught on what happens between death and resurrection. And so we did an entire lesson on that. I encourage you to go back and listen to that audio. Uh, but basically what you see is in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it is, um, uh, Paul uses this language of uh, our bodies are like a tent. And when we die, we're kind of like this. Uh, he uses the imagery of uh, we are, and uh, my wife is going to make fun of me for saying naked, but that's the way I say it because I'm from Baytown. Naked, or however you say it. That's the imagery that he uses there, that we are naked, uh, we, we don't have our bodies, and we are longing, that's the language that he uses, longing to be further clothed. So the goal is not that you escape from the prison of your body, that's part of the, the, the heresy that First John has written to com- combat. Uh, the hope is that you would get a better body, a, a, a newer body, a restored body, a recreated body, a resurrected sort of body. And so your eternal existence, and we'll talk about this over the, the, the next a uh, few weeks and so, uh, your, your eternal existence is not this disembodied, ethereal, floating around uh, on the clouds, wearing a little baby uh, uh, diaper sort of thing. Um, that's not it. Your hope is that you would get a resurrected lo- a body, that the heavens would be joined to the earth, and that there would be this resurrected earth, that there would be a, uh, not a resurrected earth, but a new earth, a restored earth, a recreated earth. And so your, your eternal existence will be uh, an embodied existence. But there will be a temporary period if you die now in which you are disembodied and you are with the Lord as you are waiting for the resurrection. So if I said that wrongly earlier, I apologize. No, that's great. Very good. Uh, John 5.28 seems to imply that doing good gets you eternal life and doing evil gets you judgment in the resurrection. I thought being in Christ provided eternal life. How do we reconcile this? Now, I'm glad that we're going to talk a lot about that in the sermon this morning because it's going to talk about the difference between walking in the light and walking in the darkness. The short answer is simply this. Your good deeds are the evidence, not the grounds of your justification. 
Constantly the Bible will talk about those who do good will be saved and those who do evil will not be saved. It's not because you're somehow putting God in your debt or meriting his favor. It's because if you've been transformed by the Spirit, you live like a spirit person. And if you have not been transformed and you are just given over to the devil in the flesh, guess what? You act like a devil flesh person. And so that's the idea. Your, your good deeds are all we can view. I can look at somebody and I don't know what kind of tree they are. I have to look at their fruit. And so what happens is the Bible will constantly talk like that, not because you earn salvation or it's works-based salvation or anything like that, but your actions show your status. Your actions put your money where your mouth is. And so uh, when the Bible talks about that, it's not going against everything else it says about justification by faith. It's simply saying the person who has been in Christ, who has put their faith in Christ, walks like Christ walked. And the person who doesn't walks in unrepentant, habitual, high-handed sin. And so, uh, anyway, anything you wanted to add on that, uh, that passage? Just that, so, John in particular, you'll see that in First uh, John and uh, uh, all of the Johannine epistles and in the Gospel of John, is going to deal with contrast. So you'll see a very strong contrast between light and darkness, right? And those are two different realms. You're either in the light or you're in darkness. You'll see a, a contrast between truth and uh, falsehood. That's a very strong contrast. He, uh, truth versus the liar and that kind of stuff. You will, uh, you'll see uh, love versus hate. That's what John is going to say. You either love your brother or you hate your brother. There is no in-between in John's uh, way of, of writing because he's very much taking contrast. Likewise, good and bad. And those are just kind of idioms for expressing these two different categories. Those who do good... Good in the context of, uh, of John includes all of that faith, obedience, love, all of these sorts of things. So it's not a denial of justification by faith. It's just simply a category that describes those people who love and trust Jesus. Bad is a category that describes those who do not love and trust Jesus. And so John is just writing very poetically to show this stark contrast between, between these two different ways of living. Great. Okay. Last question. Last question of the morning. A very pastoral question. If friends, skeptics, etc., sometimes those are the same thing, I guess, ask us questions about eschatology and we are not sure of the answers, how can we tell them about the end times in a good way without saying something wrong? Do you want to start with that? Just some pastoral thoughts on that? Okay, you cough, turn off your mic, and then I'll call on you. Okay, so a few things. One is um, give yourself grace when you're sharing the gospel, when you're explaining the Bible. Okay? This is one of the reasons that we are Reformed. We believe that salvation is up to God, not your slick presentation of it. Okay? Every time you present God, you do not present him in his full majesty. He's greater than the way you're presenting him. Okay? So take courage. In the same way that nobody prays rightly, the Spirit has to do it. Nobody evangelizes rightly. Nobody repents rightly. Nobody has faith rightly. That should crush your legalism. I'm trying to do it so right. You can't. The Bible says that, so just rest and be loved. That's a pastoral point, number one. The second thing is you do need to study the Bible better so that you do not give wrong answers to these kind of things, okay? Part of it is not, I think sometimes we get overwhelmed. We think, unless I know Latin and I study the Bible for all these hours, and I, God has written his word so the average Christian can understand it. It's written to, quote, make wise the simple. Even the simple can understand it. You're to teach it to your kids when they rise up and when you walk along the way and all these kind of things. God has not written us this mystery book that we don't know what's going on. And so, so much of it is just disciplining yourself little by little, just a little bit each day to read it. And the more you read it, the more the other parts will make sense. 
lastly, I would say that when you're talking to somebody who's a skeptic or somebody who's lost, I think the goal is always to make Christ look beautiful because he is. I don't think the goal is to get into weird debates on the millennium or weird debates on these kind of things. I think it's to say, do you as a lost person agree that the world is pretty messed up, that we go through nuclear bombs and the Holocaust and rape and molestation and all these things all of world history? Yeah. Let me give you some good news. What if that were all to end? What if God were to redeem everything? What if everything, even in your wicked heart, I wouldn't say that to them directly, but even in your wicked heart, there's still something that wants justice, right? Uh, People in prison that are convicts still beat up somebody who's molested a child. There's still something in the human heart that wants justice. I would encourage them that that's coming. Redemption is coming. Justice is coming. In a sense, it's already come. This is the hope. The things, some of the things you hate, God hates. Some of the things you love, even in your depraved humanness, God still loves. And so I think it's making God look beautiful. He's the solution, and we are the problem. And I think a lot of skeptics think of it the other way around. And so I think reversing that to them is helpful. Any other thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, just say <clears throat> in Yoda-like wisdom, uh, this, will, this will be a, a, a contrast. So I think at times there needs to be a sense in which we just don't say anything, that we recognize in humility I don't have an answer. So occasionally I feel like, you know, there might be, during Q&A, there's occasionally times I just start talking and then think, eh, eventually the answer will come to me. <laughs> and maybe sometimes I just need to say, you know what, I don't, I don't know that one. And so if I'm talking to a skeptic, I can say, you know what, I, I don't know that particular, I don't know the answer to that particular question that you're asking. But if I had an answer to that question, would you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? That he died for your sins, that he rose from the dead? Because that's the thing that I I don't care about whether or not you are a, you know, premillennial or postmillennial or amillennial or whatever it might be. I care that you're a Christian. So if I could answer this, then would you believe that? And if so, then great, let's have that conversation. But I think oftentimes we just say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I can, I can look it up. I think you should study and figure that out. And I think the other thing is, sometimes I think you just should speak and just be faithful. And so God is not asking you for be, to be perfect to be perfect in knowledge, to have all of the answers or whatever it might be. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. And so there are certain people in the room that are going to be more equipped to have those conversations because they've been given the gifts of knowledge and faith and wisdom and all of these sorts of things. They're giving the gift of being a teacher. And so there's always going to be a sense in which there are others who know more about a certain topic than you. But I think your call is not to be everything, but just simply to be faithful. And so maybe for you that involves just saying, you know what, I don't know about that. You asked about the millennium. I don't know about the millennium, but let me tell you what I do know. I know about this. I know that Jesus is coming. I know these seven points. I know that God is sovereign. I know that Jesus is coming back. I know that there's going to be eternal judgment. I know these sorts of, uh, uh, of things. And so, so I think at times speaking less and at times speaking more in confidence that you don't have to get everything right. It's kind of like if you're talking to someone who is uh, you know, Muslim or Hindu or something like that. You don't have to know all of the intricate details of uh, Islam in order to love and serve and encourage and evangelize someone who is a proponent of that religion. You need to know the gospel. So get to know the gospel better, and those things will come in time. Uh, Okay, Tim said, by the way, that the uh, syllabus is now online on the Theological Equipping page on our website. So... uh Just let's pretend it's been there the whole time. And uh, you can check that out. And uh, Jeff, you want to pray us out? We'll be done. Yeah. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. I pray for your help in uh, in the next uh, few months as we uh, consider 
eschatology, that you would give a profound amount of grace that uh, for everybody who steps up on stage, that, uh, that we would speak truth and not lies, that we would uh, be humble and, uh, and that you would just help us, Lord, just confess there are things in here that are difficult. Peter says that even about Paul's writing, that there's things that he writes that are difficult, and so I want to confess that about this topic. I pray for our people, Lord, that they wouldn't be unduly offended or disturbed if we challenge some of their presuppositions. They wouldn't think that we're going liberal or that we're denying the gospel or that we don't love the Bible or something like that. There would just be a tremendous amount of grace for our body that you would unify us and help us and create in us a hunger and thirst and yearning for the return of Jesus Christ that impacts the way that we live in the present, that we might live lives of holiness, that we might live lives of love and sacrifice and joy and, uh, and so forth. And so pray for us as we go forth from here and, uh, and as we open up together First John, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, open our eyes that we would behold the glory of your word, and that you would uh, impact our hearts so that we might really sing and encourage each other with joy and hope in Jesus' name. Amen.